everyone doing this evening? Hey, that was good. It's a three-day weekend. That's why everyone's so excited, right? And we have a big game tonight. Go Heat. Can I get a Go Heat? There we go. Well, I'm glad to have you guys here. I want to say something actually before we move into our passage this evening, which is going to be on friendship. And I just got a text um, about our friends and our sister church in Brazil. So um, if you don't know, Crossbridge is a family of churches here in Miami. We have uh, five churches all across the city. We partner together in mission and vision. We are a family. Uh, but we also have an extended family that's part of our bridge movement in Brazil, in Recife, and in other parts as well. But just uh, this past weekend, I just got um, a message from our, our pastors there and our friends there that they had incredible flooding. And so far, 5,000 people have lost their homes and their 60 deaths in that city. The, our church there was uh, flooded, thousands of dollars of damage. And they had to do their worship service online from, you know, their, from their house. So be praying for them. Many of you know, if you've been here a part of Crossbridge, that as Simone was just sharing with your, your offering, uh, time of offering, that, that we partner with them and we support them. And so much of what you give here goes to them and we expect that there's going to be needs here in the future to, to care for them and to love them. And so be praying for them as they are sorting out what, how they're going to care for the community, how they're going to restart the church. Um, I just read that message right before the service and I thought it was important to share with you guys, family, what's happening to our extended family in Brazil. So be praying for them. Uh, and that is why we do life together. That's why we are not a single church isolated, but we are a part of a family. We are friends with other churches, both here and in other countries, because that is how God has called us to live. He's called us to live not alone as individuals, but connected together. We are starting episode five of our series called The Race. We're tracing the life of the Apostle Paul through the book of Acts. And uh, we left off last week with Barnabas, this uh, man who entered into the story in Paul's life. And he saw Paul in his need, he felt for him, and he advocated for him. Because Paul was trying to join the church in Jerusalem, but they didn't even believe that he was a disciple. Meaning they didn't even believe that he was a believer in Jesus. So Barnabas saw his need, felt for him, and advocated for him. And Paul was accepted by the church and the leadership and established within that community. That's where we left off. And we're going to pick up back in Paul's life. We're actually going to skip a few chapters. We spent four weeks in Acts chapter 9. And tonight we're going to be in Acts chapter 13. And we're going to see the friendship between Paul and Barnabas. We're going to learn what it means to be a friend and why God has called us to be connected to one another, not to live life alone. The title of the sermon is Running Mates. So if you have your Bible or if you have the Crossbridge Brickle app, uh, you can read along or it will also be on the screen behind me. Acts chapter 13 Verse 1 through 3 says this. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them. And sent them off. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So tonight we're going to be 
kind of filling you in for what takes place from Acts chapter 9 to Acts chapter 13. So don't worry, we're going to trek and see how we got here in Antioch with Barnabas and Saul. And I'm warning you, if you follow me on Instagram, you know I said this, there's going to be some real talk tonight. Okay, so I'm going to explore some things and say some things just to, to be honest and to talk about community versus individualism. And to speak about um, sometimes how we operate within the church and how friendship at times can feel like the lesser of relationships that we're pursuing and that we invest in. But it is not the way that we've been designed and it is certainly not how God has called us to function. But I want to speak truthfully so that we might see some of the obstacles that are in our way. Because I think every single one of us in this room would say friends are a good thing. But not every one of us in this room would say I have good friends. And there's reasons for that. There's obstacles that our culture places before us, that church life can place before us, and even that we have within ourselves that we need to address, we need to tackle, so that we can see the value and the power of friends and then pursue them. And so here, we're going to see that through the life of the Apostle Paul and Barnabas, the power and the value of friendship. You see, when you're running a race, one of the most important things for you to have is water. Because if you're not drinking water when you run, you will get dehydrated and you will cramp and collapse. Now, I'm not necessarily speaking from experience on this, okay, but I know this to be true. You cannot run a marathon and have one sip of water at the beginning of the race and then run the entire 26 point whatever three miles and have no water. You need to drink water along the race regardless of the distance because if not, you will cramp and collapse. And I'm telling you that because one of the things that we need to understand about the race of faith that God calls us to run is that we need fuel so that we do not get dehydrated as we run. When we run the race of faith, if you do not have the fuel in your life, you will get dehydrated, you will cramp, and you will collapse. And the fuel is the grace of God. The grace of God is the very thing that motivates us, that replenishes us, that refills us, that gives us that energy when we're getting tired to continue on in the race. And God's grace, which is our fuel, it is the water so that we can run, it comes to us in multiple forms. Now, in the Protestant church, oftentimes there are two primary ways that God's grace is elevated as uh, as a means by which it is dispensed to God's people. The first way is through preaching. So this moment right here, every Sunday. The Protestant tradition elevates this moment as a means of grace, of God using the person speaking, not because they're unique, but because God uses them as a vessel to communicate his grace to his people and to replenish them. The second way that in the Protestant tradition we would say that God's grace is dispensed is through the sacraments, baptism, and communion. So this is one reason why here at Crossbridge we have preaching every Sunday, like pretty much every church. But we also have communion every Sunday. Because communion is a means of grace that God gives to us to replenish us, to refill us. You see, through preaching and through communion, through baptism, through other means as well, which we will see tonight, God brings us his grace afresh And anew because we need it not one time, but we need it constantly through the race of life. You don't just experience God's grace one time when you come to believe in Jesus and then you don't need it anymore. You need it all the time. Afresh and anew. But one of the other ways that is very clear throughout scripture, but often neglected in the church, 
that God brings his grace afresh and anew to us is through friends. You see, it, it, there's something powerful and important about not just hearing the word preached and partaking of the elements in communion, but it's doing those things together. You take communion, not alone, but together. You listen to the preached word, not alone, but together. Now with YouTube, you can listen to it alone and on podcasts, but, but you're not meant to do it only that way. We're meant to be in community, the community of God's people, the friendships and relationships that are developed is a primary means that God reveals his grace afresh and anew to us. And it's vital for us to run the race of faith. And on the opposite side of that, if you do not have or pursue friendships, the other side is a very dangerous place to be. It is a place where there is loneliness and cramping and collapsing because friends are not a part of your life. There's a theologian, author, and priest by the name of Henry Nouwen that has this great quote I want to read to you. It says this, we are in a growing degree exposed to the contagious disease of loneliness in a world in which a competitive individualism tries to reconcile itself with a culture that speaks about togetherness, unity, and community as the ideals to strive for. So what he's highlighting there is that we live in a culture where togetherness and unity and community is elevated. We speak about it often. You hear it in so many different mediums in our society. That we need to have community, we need to be together, we need to be united. But we also have that juxtaposed with hyper-individualism pushed on us at all times. That your life is about you and your dreams and your goals and your happiness and your pleasure and your fulfillment. And these things are in competition with one another. You see, if, if God's grace comes to us through friends, which I believe it does, then we need to address this reality that we live in in 2022, which is hyper-individualism constantly flooding us versus this value of community. And I think that this competition between individualism and community has kind of two effects, many more, I'm certainly, but two I want to highlight. The first is this. It creates a culture of excuses. You value friends, but maybe you said this, I don't have time for friends right now. Right? I value it, community, togetherness, all of that, but I don't have time right now. Typically, why? Because of your individual pursuits. Because right now is a season for my school and my degree and my dreams and my goals and my work. It's all of these other things that are important to you. They're individual pursuits that cause you to say, I don't need friends right now or I don't have time for friends. So I don't make the space or I don't put the attention into developing them. Typically, if you fall into this category, if individualism and, comp and community has been competing in your life that causes you to feel this way, the people in your life that you call friends are really people of utility. You have your pursuits, your goals, your dreams. You can have friends as long as they fit in your life. If, as long as they're a benefit to you, they don't affect your schedule, they don't weigh you down, they don't affect you at all, then you can have friends. But if they don't fit, then you're just going to keep pushing on your agenda, your forward motion. So this is one reason why a lot of people don't have friends in our society. And I think one of the things that develops out of this, which we don't talk about often in this way, is that if you're in this camp, 
there's probably deep loneliness that you struggle with. See, I believe that we here in Miami, we live in one of the most beautiful cities in the world. Amen. Amen. But we live in one of the most lonely cities in the world. Lonely. A lot of people pursuing dreams and goals and experiences and schooling, all of these things, but people that are deeply lonely. Because they're pursuing these individual pursuits. They don't have time for friends and all of these things. It's a waste of time and it's not helping their agenda. And so what happens, and here's how I think loneliness works. Loneliness is like the monster under the bed that rears itself at night. That's when it comes out. Like literally at night. Because what happens, during the day you're pursuing your dreams and your goals, your career, your schooling. And then at night when those things cut off, loneliness creeps up. So that's why I think a lot of people work at night. They go to dinner, they come home, they maybe, or they binge watch Netflix. Because loneliness creeps up at night. Because we make excuses, no time, no space, no investment. The second thing is this. We have a parody of community. A parody of community is this. And this is true, I'm going to address the church, but this can be true in any community. It's a community and an environment that is inviting you to in, inviting you to community but does not incorporate you into it. It's a parody of community. And let me flesh it out. I told you we're going to have real talk, so I'm going to be honest about sometimes how things can be in the church. In the church, we say all the time that community is vital. I, I think there's very few churches at, that you will attend and they'll say, no, community doesn't matter. No one's going to say that, right? Community is vital. In fact, we have slogans, right? This is family. Welcome home. Friends like family. All these different things that we say. Here we say belong before you believe. We believe these things. We, we, we promote these things. We value these things. But a lot of times, here's how it feels to people. That you have the person on stage telling you this is a community, you should belong, this is family, you're invited. You have different kind of programs or graphic images online and different things on social media that tell you this is a family, this is a community, this is a place for you to belong. But then what it feels like to the person that comes is that the church really wants from me my volunteer hours, a membership tally. They want me to be present every single Sunday for their attendance. They want money in the plate for offering, but they don't really want me. They want what they can get from me, but they don't really want me. Sometimes it can feel for people in a church that, that the congregation is a congregation of utility. And let me, let me just be honest. Sometimes church leadership, not out of a spiteful or, or mean spirit, can become so focused on their goals and their dreams that they treat the congregation as something to benefit their goals and dreams. Instead of viewing the congregation as the larger community that helps shape the mission and the vision of the church. And so people feel like I'm not wanted for me, I'm wanted for what I can provide. That can be true. And the reverse can be true as well. That people can go to church and they go to church with an individual mindset. Just like the church can be kind of shaped out of a, a few individuals in leadership that can make the congregation feel like a utility. Also, too, individuals can go to church and their whole mentality is, I'm going to church to get what I want out of it. I'm going for me. 
I'm not going for friends. I'm not going for community. I'm not going for anything else. I, I will give only what fits within my schedule. I will not sacrifice for it. I go for the kind of worship I like, the kind of preaching I like, the kind of people I like. And I will stay there as long as they give me what I want. And if they don't give me what I want, then I just go to another church. There's a lot of church hopping around because this church gave me this for a couple years, but then it wasn't as good. So then I went to another one because I had a different need and I got that met there. And so it's a lot of individual going and receiving but not giving. This creates a difficulty in the church, all of these things. The excuses, the focus on our own agenda, the parity of community in both forms. It creates a difficulty at times to feel like you are incorporated into the community and that you are, you're in a place where you can find friends. See, I want to say something. I don't believe that everyone in the church should be best friends with everybody. That's impossible, okay. You cannot all be best friends. But I believe that everyone in the church should have somebody to befriend. Because here's what genuine community is. Genuine community is the knitting together of people in friendship. It doesn't mean that everyone is best friends. Because if you think about a spider web, there are different points in different sections. The top of the spider web, the bottom of the spider web, those are far points of, uh, across from each other. However, they're connected by all the other strands of the web. And so you can have close friendships, but you're part of one big unified body, a place of compassion and kindness and love and openness. That's genuine community, when people are knit together in friendships. Fake community is when people are in a gathering because they're like-minded and they're all there to benefit from one another. You're there because you're like-minded and you're using one another to benefit yourself. You see, I really believe that in the church, if, individual, if individualism wins, community loses. Why do you think we find so much loneliness in the church, so much difficulty for real community and, and depth of community and deep friendships? Because in many church communities, individualism is winning the day and community loses. I believe that to be true. But here we see in Paul and Barnabas what real friendship looks like. You see, these are the obstacles for us. The individualism in our culture, the excuses, the parity of community. We're all affected by these things. None of us are exempt. These are the obstacles that we have to tackle. But there is a picture in Paul and Barnabas and all throughout Scripture of the value and the power of community and in particular friendship. And we're going to see that. So I told you we're going to pick up where we left off. Last week, Barnabas, who doesn't really know Paul, but he got to know his story. He saw him. He felt for him because he was being outcasted from the church in Jerusalem. He advocated for him, and Paul gets accepted by the church. And that's where he left off. Here's what happens. Quick snapshot of a few chapters. Paul, who's going around proclaiming Jesus in and around Jerusalem, Judea, you know, modern-day Israel. He's going around. There's another threat to his life. They want him dead. So the church now that he just got accepted by, the church in Jerusalem, helps him to escape to a city called Tarshish. That's in modern-day Turkey. So he escapes there to save his life. It's his hometown. He goes there. Then we read Barnabas, who is sent from Jerusalem to this city, Antioch, where we pick up here in verse, or chapter 13. Antioch is a city that has explosive growth. It's in modern-day Turkey as well. It's near Tarshish. It's having explosive growth in the church. 
they need a leader, and so they send Barnabas. Here in Antioch is where Christians are first called Christians. So Barnabas is leading this effort. He's the pastor of the church in Antioch. This is incredible things are happening. And while he is there, he decides that he does not want to do ministry and do life alone. So he leaves Antioch. He goes to Tarshish. He gets Paul and he brings him back. He says, Paul, you're coming with me. We're going to do ministry together in Antioch. We are going to be connected at the hip to one another. And there they do ministry in Antioch. In fact, the church there in Antioch sends Paul and Barnabas down to Jerusalem to bring some resources to the church in Jerusalem because there's a famine coming. And the church in Jerusalem is poor. The church in Antioch has a lot of resources. So they help them out. They send it with Paul and Barnabas. Paul and Barnabas, who are now in Jerusalem, they go back to Antioch because that's where they're called to minister together. That's the church that they're leading. They bring with them this guy, John Mark. That's important for you to understand. John Mark is with them. It's Paul. It's Barnabas. They're back in Antioch. And that is where we pick up our passage. It speaks about Antioch. It says there's prophets. There's teachers there. And two of those people highlighted are Paul and Barnabas. And then they get set apart by the Holy Spirit to do further work together. Now, in their friendship and in their life, we see four things about friendships, four aspects of friendship. Here are the four. One, courageous intention. Two, mutual mission. Three, like-heartedness. They're like-hearted. And four, kind eyes. First, courageous intention. If I were to say, when did Paul and Barnabas' friendship begin? You may be tempted to say, if you were with us last week in Acts chapter 9, that's where it began. Because what happened was Barnabas saw Paul in his need. He saw him as a true friend. And he saw him, he felt for him, he advocated for him. Now that was a significant moment in their friendship. But I do not believe that that's where their friendship started. Because they went their separate ways and they could have gone their separate ways forever. They never would have been real friends. Just Barnabas had a heart of compassion and he encouraged Paul and he would have been a part of his story. But it doesn't necessarily mean they would have been best friends. Their friendship began when Barnabas was in Antioch and he decided out of his own will to intentionally and courageously go to Tarshish and to get Paul and to bring him back. Here's why I tell you that. There's a lot of wisdom here. Their friendship was started because of Barnabas' action. It wasn't like Paul was saying, hey, Barnabas, you know, let's be friends. And Barnabas was like, oh, yeah, let's be friends. And then they just started slowly hanging out. It was solely because Barnabas carried the weight of the friendship in the beginning. He went with intention to another city to get Paul and to say, you got to come with me. We got we to gotta do this together. We got to be connected together. We're not meant to be separated. We're meant to be friends doing missions and ministry together. That's where it began. You see, I tell you that because I think almost all friendships begin with one person having courageous intention towards the other. And a lot of times friendships are not developed because you feel like, well, hey, I'm putting in all the effort here. And they're not reciprocating. I mean, I'm trying, I'm inviting, I'm carrying the load here, and they're not reciprocating in the same way. And oftentimes friendships die right there. Because you feel like, I'm supposed to give 50, they're supposed to give 50. 
That's how it works, right? I mean, it's a friendship, 50-50. But I think in the example of Paul and Barnabas, we see that many friendships, it's 100-0 in the beginning. There is one person oftentimes that is the catalyst for the friendship that is intentional and that puts themselves out there, that is courageous, that will travel from one city to another to see if that person will come with them. Courageous intention. And I want to tell you, if there's someone in your life that you want to develop a deeper friendship with, be the catalyst, don't wait. Friendships never arrive out of nowhere. It's never just like, well, I guess somehow we're friends. I don't know how it happened. Someone is courageously intentional towards the other person. Be the catalyst in your friendship. Don't wait for it to be a 50-50. That's the first thing. Second thing, mutual mission. Barnabas goes and he gets Paul and they come back to Antioch because they are going to be on mission together. Now, Paul and Barnabas are very different people. See, we know by reading the different accounts in Scripture of Paul and Barnabas, we know about, especially as we read Paul, we can see that Paul and Barnabas are gifted differently. They have different personalities. They have different backgrounds. In fact, Barnabas is not his real name. His real name is Joseph. And he's from Africa. He's a very different culture, very different personality, very different gifting, Barnabas, Joseph, than Paul. Very different. And yet, they were on a mutual mission together. They went on missionary journeys. As I told you, they went from Antioch to Jerusalem to help the church and back to Antioch. But the reason that they were on mission together wasn't just because they said, hey, hey, we're friends now. Like, we're both called to proclaim Jesus. So let's just do it together. It wasn't solely based on their effort. In fact, God was clearing a way for their mission together. Look at verse 2 says in our passage, verse 13, chapter 13, verse 2. It says, while they were worshiping, this is in Antioch, the Lord, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, this is to the church, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the works to which I have called them. You see, what you see in their friendship is that the Holy Spirit is Setting apart, protecting, advancing, and honoring the friendship of Paul and Barnabas. God himself is speaking to the church and saying, you need to set them apart, Paul and Barnabas, so that they can do missions and ministry together. They have a mutual mission. And I think what we see here is that God is time and time again putting friends together on a mutual mission because you're meant to do life, not alone, but together. See this with Paul and Barnabas. You see this with King David and Jonathan. You see this with Naomi and Ruth. You see this all throughout Scripture, and you will see this in your own life too. Your real friends, your close friends, you are called to be on mission with them together. Now, that may mean in your school. That can mean in your work. That could mean in your larger social circle. As you look at the landscape of your other friends and you realize that you two should be on mission together to love and to care for and to proclaim Jesus to the rest of your friends. That could be in a certain justice issue in the city. That could be in the church. You should say to your friends, hey, will you serve with me in the church? Let's be on mission together. And you may think as you're searching your mind for your friends right now, I don't know, like, 
what mission would God have for me and my friends to do together? I'm not really sure. That's okay. Pray to the Holy Spirit that he will set apart a mission for you all. Because God clearly does that. He sets them apart and he calls them to do life together, to be on mission together. And you may be different than your friends, certainly. Different personality, different gifting, different amount of opportunity, different jobs, different life stage. That's okay. There are ways that you can be on mission with your friends and you're called to do that. Because you're knit together. There's mutual mission with Paul and Barnabas and the same is to be with us. The third thing is that they are like-hearted. Like-hearted and not necessarily like-minded. This is, I think this is so important. You and your friends are to be like-hearted, not like-minded. There's a great quote from Alan Jacobs who talks about belonging. He's, a, he's an author and he wrote this book, How to Think. He says this. The only real remedy for the dangers of false belonging is the, true be is the true belonging to, true membership in, a fellowship of people who are not so much like-minded as like-hearted. You know, the call of the church to be united and to, be, to commune with one another and to be together is not that we're to be like-minded. In fact, we are not supposed to be like-minded. We're supposed to think differently on different things. That's the beauty of our unity. It is diverse. But we are to be like-hearted, connected together on a heart level on what we believe and what we value, who we believe the God of the universe is and what we believe our calling is, though individual yet still together, knit together. And you and your friends are meant to be like-hearted, not necessarily like-minded. Frederick Nietzsche, the philosopher, says this about friendship. He says, if one would have a friend, then one must also be willing to wage war for him. And in order to wage war, one must be capable of being an enemy. See, here's how you tell if you and your friends are like-minded or like-hearted. When adversity strikes. When there is adversity, if you're like-minded, it will cause division and will cause great difficulty in your friendships. If you're like-hearted, when you're not like-minded and you have adversity, it's okay. You can disagree. You can wage war with one another because real friends are willing to wage war with the other. They're not, they're not intimidated by that because they're not built upon being like-minded. They're like-hearted. They're connected on a deeper level. You may say, well, how do you say that with Paul and Barnabas? Two chapters later in Acts 15, here's what happens with Paul and Barnabas. There are these great friends, right? Mutual mission, courageous intention from Barnabas. They're doing ministry together. They're amazing. In Acts 15, they have what is described a sharp disagreement. They wage war with one another over John Mark. Remember I told you to remember John Mark? They brought John Mark with them from Jerusalem to Antioch. He was with them for a, little bit, for a little bit of time, but then he left. In Acts 15, he comes back and wants to rejoin Paul and Barnabas. Well, Paul feels betrayed. He doesn't want John Mark. He is no help to them. Barnabas disagrees. Barnabas wants John Mark to be a part of their ministry and their mission. 
They have a sharp disagreement, so much so that they separate. They go their separate ways. Barnabas goes with John Mark, and Paul goes with Silas and eventually Timothy. They go their separate ways. These great friends, different missionary journeys, different places in the world, they separate. And you think, well, that didn't last long. You know, a couple years max. What kind of friendship is this? Well, we read Paul speaking about Barnabas in the rest of Scripture in a way of honoring him, telling churches to welcome him, speaking about the depth and the love of their friendship and their love for one another. In fact, here's what happens. Later, Paul reconciles with John Mark and says that he is actually a help in his ministry. So that sharp disagreement that brought them on separate paths did not destroy their friendship. They remained friends. They honored each other. They cared for each other. They loved each other. In fact, that sharp disagreement helped Paul to eventually forgive and reconcile with John Mark. Real friends are willing to wage war with one another. And they're not afraid of adversity because even if God takes them on separate paths, they remain friends. That's real friendship. Because you're connected on a heart level, not necessarily a mind level. And lastly, real friends have kind eyes. Now this is like, what in the world does this mean? Let me explain this, okay. The bedrock of their friendship, Paul and Barnabas, was what I've been alluding to that happened in Acts chapter 9. See, it wasn't the beginning of their friendship. The beginning of their friendship was the courageous intention of Barnabas to go to Tarshish and get Paul and then start their life together as friends. But the bedrock, the foundation of their friendship was the kind eyes of Barnabas to look at Paul in his time of need. It was to see him and to feel for him and to advocate him. That formed the bedrock of their relationship and their friendship. And I, and I say that because there is so much power in the kind eyes of another person and, and seeing the face of grace in someone else. Because friendships, as I said from the very beginning, is a way that God dispenses his grace to us through a friend. You see, I've been reading this past week um, some scientific journals. Don't ask why because I, was, I went down a rabbit hole. Neuroscientists are studying babies' brains and I started reading. And here's what I found, okay. I know we have a lot of doctors and scientists in the room, so you, you probably already know this. But they've been studying children from ages 18 to 24 months. They've been studying the brain development of children. And one of the things that they found is that something that has the, one of the most profound effects on a young child, on a baby, are the kind eyes of mom or a primary caregiver. That when... When the one who is entrusted to care for and to nurture that child looks at them with kind eyes and affection, they actually see brain development. The brain grows through the expression and the eyes of mom or a caregiver. And on the reverse, they have found when there's an absent nature in the relationship or that there's an expressionless face and there's not that kindness in the eyes of, of mom or the caregiver, that the baby, the, the, the brain of the child actually struggles. It begins to try to reconcile what's wrong and tries to fix the relationship. There's negative effects. Why is this? Because from the very beginning, from birth, we are looking for kind eyes. 
We are looking for the face of grace and love in another person. And you know this. Here's how you know this. When you walk into a room, you're invited to a networking meeting or to a party. When you walk in a room, you know almost immediately whether or not you're welcome. You don't, no one has to say anything. You look at their eyes. You can tell whether or not you are welcome. In fact, more brain study, 40 milliseconds your brain takes to process whether or not you're welcome. And what happens is, as your brain is processing whether or not there's kindness in the room and that you're welcome there, it releases, if there is kindness, it releases dopamine so that it brings cheer and joy to you. This all happens before you're even aware of it. Your brain is doing all this before you're even thinking, I'm welcome, I'm welcome here. I'm happy to be here. That is all happening. It's pre-rational. Isn't that amazing? That you have been designed and developed to look for kindness in the eyes of another. You see, real friends look at each other, sometimes with sharp disagreement, and it's okay because they're like-hearted. They seek to develop mutual mission. Someone in that relationship was courageously intentional to, to develop it, but there's a kindness in the eyes of a friend to one another. And that kindness is powerful because we have been made from the very beginning to look for a face of grace and love. There is power in grace and love. It is fueling to us. It replenishes us. It pushes us forward when a friend looks at us with kindness and compassion and with love. And in our relationships, in our friendships, we're meant to not only receive that, but to give that as well. That's what real friends do. You see, you're not meant to run the race of faith alone. You need a running mate. All of us in this room need at least one running mate. We need multiple running mates. Because God's grace is dispensed to you and to me through friends. And that should make all the sense in the world because we are connected together. Not because we're like-minded, but because we're like-hearted. Because the very God of the universe ran towards us to establish a friendship with us. Think about what the gospel, the good news says to you and to me. Jesus was courageously intentional. He put a hundred percent to establishing a relationship with you and me and we gave zero percent. In fact, Jesus said that while we, you were still sinners, Christ died. While you were still a sinner, you wanted nothing to do, you were in a different land, a different city, Jesus pursued you. He left the throne of grace and he came down to live the life you couldn't. He died the death you deserved. He rose from the dead three days later and invites you and incorporates you into the very family of God. It was courageously intentional. And God himself also puts you on a mutual mission with him. You see, we've been talking about running the race of faith. But you're not running alone. You're running with other people. You need running mates. But the race that you are running is God's mission for you that he is partnering alongside of you. Ephesians chapter 2 says that God has prepared for you before the foundation of the world works for you to do. See, the mission that God has called you on, the purpose that you have, is not by accident. You didn't develop it yourself. God is giving it to you and he's partnering with you. Third, your relationship with God is not because you're like-minded. You know that? You and God, me and God, we're not like-minded. <laughs> it's because we're like-hearted. What is the promise of faith? That when you come to faith in Jesus, what does God give you? A new, what? 
heart. The old is gone, the new has come. A new heart that builds actually a renewal of your mind. You see, your relationship and connection to the very God of the universe is because he gives you a new heart. You're like-hearted. And lastly, God himself looks at you and he looks at me through faith in Christ with kind eyes. Listen to what the psalmist says. King David, he says this. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. Psalm 17 verse 8 says this. This is a prayer, okay, of David. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. The very God of the universe views you as the apple of his eye. His eyes are toward you with kindness and compassion and grace and love. Jesus makes this claim. Think about how bold this is. He says that I, you used to be servants, but no longer are you servants. I now call you friends. You're friends of God. The very God of the universe who was courageously intentional to incorporate you into his family, into relationship with him. The very God of the universe who has given you a mission that is his, that he's given to you, that he partners alongside of you. Because you're running the race that he wants you to run for him and his glory. The very God of the universe who you're not like-minded with, you're like-hearted because he gives you a new heart and he looks at you with kind eyes and he calls you friend. And he says, my eyes are toward you. This is the very God who created you. And if God ran to you in this way with friendship, how do you think you are supposed to run towards other people? Looking to develop a friendship. We are not meant to run the race of faith alone. We are meant to run with friends. Because the God who calls us to run is our friend as well. So would you be intentional this week with your friendships? Don't make excuses. Don't accept a parody of community. Overcome the obstacles. See the value and the power of friendships and pursue it because it is how we are made to live. Amen. Will you pray with me? God, we thank you that we are your friends. That is such a shocking statement, God. We are your friends. It's hard at times for us to believe because we are not like-minded at all. You are the all-knowing, all-powerful, all-loving one. You are the God who, for your joy, for your glory, for your delight, out of your creativity, created the universe. You are holy and perfect in all that you do, and yet we're your friend. Your grace is so good. Thank you, God, that you look at us with kind eyes, with compassion, with care, with concern, that when we cry out, you are attentive. Thank you, Jesus, that you were intentional. God, thank you that you have given us a mission that you've prepared for us. It's your mission that we might run and that you are with us. Thank you for giving us a new heart. I pray that you would continue to grow us in your image and in knowledge of you. Would we feel safe with you as a friend, God. And Lord, we come to you now. 
And we ask that you hear our cry. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, church, I said um, 